0: I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us today. I just finished talking with Gordon Chang about his new book, Fateful Ties, a history of America's preoccupation with China. This came out in 2015 with Harvard University Press. What the book does really well is take um, the current situation that we're all living in right now in terms of understanding the relationship between China and America on a global stage, politically, intellectually, economically, socially. There are lots and lots of aspects of today's relationship between America and China that are not only important for us to understand for how we live now, but are also important to understand, to kind of chart a path for the future. Now, what the book does is it takes a long view of Chinese American relations and takes us back to the 18th century to chart the path of various threads that'll come together to weave um, the current fabric of US China relations as a way of really giving us what Gordon will talk about at the end of the interview um, as a long view of this situation um, and as a you know an important historical contextualization that can inform how we live and understand um, and respond to the situation right now. What he does is he takes us through a series of chapters that successively look at not just official government-level policy interactions between China and the U.S., but also really important personal interactions with China um, and or with the U.S. at the level of the individual individual artists, intellectuals, politicians, ping pong players, actors, um, and others who not only had personal um, relationships with China or the U.S., but also whose work importantly impacted um, the public opinion surrounding these issues. And so you'll meet um, and you'll hear us talking about Um, People including Ben Franklin, Shirley MacLaine, um, Nixon, other presidents, there's lots of people from the American side who are being very influential in terms of public opinion about China throughout this history, but there are also important um, Chinese laborers. Um, You'll hear us talking a bit about railway workers, students and intellectuals who are coming to the U.S. um, and really shaping this relationship as a result of that as well. So it's a story about ideas. It's a story about dreams, about destinies. It's a story about governments. It's also a story about individual people. And it's a story um, that is written to um, appeal to, and I think it's very successful, at reaching a very wide audience well beyond professional academics. So I hope you enjoy the conversation, um, and I hope you have a chance to get your hands on the book, because there's a lot in there um, that we only barely um, touch in the course of the conversation. Thank you, as ever, for listening, um, and we'll see you soon. I'm here today to talk with Gordon Chang about his new book, Fateful Ties. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Gordon, and thanks very much both for writing an extraordinarily engaging book and also for making time today to talk with me about it. Welcome to the channel.
1: I'm very happy to be here, Carla. Thank you for having me.
0: So, Gordon, let's start out as is traditional for the channel by saying a little bit about uh, what brought you to the field. So, specifically in this case, how did you come to work on the history of East Asia as part of your work as a historian?
1: Well, that's a good question to begin with because officially if you go onto the Stanford website or my faculty website, I'm listed as an Americanist. Mm -hmm. And uh, people know me here as an Americanist. But I I began my work uh, actually as an East Asianist. Uh, My graduate work originally was in modern Chinese history. And I've continued to have a passion in it, even though I sort of migrated over more towards what one might call US East Asia relations history. So I've never been uh, fully divorced from the field of East Asia. My undergraduate degree was in East Asian studies and history at Princeton. And uh, I began graduate school many years ago uh, studying modern Chinese history. Uh, But over the years, I've sort of been interested in Pacific engagement. And that's uh, uh, what I've been doing for the past uh, 25 years.
0: So the book that we're talking about today is subtitled A History of America's Preoccupation with China. Um, You start out in the introduction mentioning um, that there was, and this is, uh, I think, a rough paraphrase, there was a China before there was an America, and it is because of China that America came to be. This is um, the words of the chapter. The idea of China became, in the words of the introduction, an ingredient within the developing identity of America itself. And so the book goes on to take us from the 18th century through today, basically, um, to take us through not just the importance of China, of the reality of China, of the idea of China, to the development and practice of America and Americans, but it also looks at the ways that America and China have mutually um, co-constituted, if not each other full stop, then important parts of each other's history, politics, and culture. So what brought you to this topic in particular? How did you come to both decide to work on this, but also decide to create a book-length object about
1: this? The question of uh, the relationship of America and China has preoccupied me uh, from the earliest part of my studies, including even undergraduate years. But uh, over the past uh, several decades here at Stanford, I've been teaching us east asia relations history, And uh, a few years ago, when an editor from Harvard University Press reached me and asked if I knew someone who might write a book about uh, U.S.-East Asia, U.S.-China relations, um, and I gave her some uh, authors I thought who could do a job, and she came back and she said, no, Gordon, why don't you do it? And I said, well, I was in the middle of another book project at the time, And it's still uncompleted and I want to return to eventually. But I said, all right, I think I will do it because if I don't do it now, I won't do it. And it will be sort of a culminating work uh, for my career. So I seized the opportunity to to engage in this topic um, and to use this as an uh, opportunity to put down on paper things I've been thinking about for a good number of years. Um, Yes. No, no, go on. I'm sorry. Uh so uh, the, the, she, when I then sat down and started to think, well, what I'm actually going to say, I have a lot to say. And it occurred to me that the way to begin was perhaps to uh, present a work that would give a history of the present. That is to say, today, Americans and people around the world, but Americans in particular, that's the intended audience, uh, are fascinated, preoccupied, obsessed with China and the relationship between the United States and China. And every day we can all we can look at a, the newspapers every day and see all sorts of articles uh, about uh, life in China, economics in China, politics in China, all sorts of, of matters. Uh, and at least here in the United States, many of these articles I feel are quite impassioned. They're they're really uh, a bit beyond dispassionate uh, journalism. But there's an element in there of urgency and even of emotion in many cases, even very respected news, news uh, uh, enterprises uh, have that, 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 that sense, it seems to me. So I thought, well, when I looked at these articles, this, 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 this uh, passion, it occurred to me that much of this is really not that new or that it's actually a continuation of chords that have been uh, sounded through hundreds of years, 100, 200 years. Uh, And as a historian, I thought this would be my opportunity to bring to the discussion a long view of the relationship, to put into context the current uh, concern about China, expressed by journalists, by social scientists, by all sorts of people, about the current situation. And... uh, For me, much of what we are hearing today uh, resonates with uh, episodes in this long history, which is not to say that nothing is new. And there is entirely, there's so much that is new. China is entirely uh, a different place today than it was uh, some just a few decades ago. Uh, But the, 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 the vocabulary, the attitude, the perception, the anxiety that I see all around expressed in the United States uh, echoed things that I knew very well from looking at the historical past. And so I think that's what I tried to do with this book is to give a long history of this relationship. It's not a political history. It's not a diplomatic history. It's not a, a, a history that focuses on the immediate. And that's what I call politics in my earlier career. I, I did quite a bit of a political history or diplomatic history, but I've moved away from that approach to try to think of something more long-term, more contextual, more cultural, ideological, if you will, if you will to think about the mental context of decision-making uh, and, the, and the cut and drift of politics and to, to think about some of the more long-term trends in the relationship that go beyond today or go beyond a few years and to think, see continuities as well as discontinuities in this very um, often fraught but uh, but continuing relationship.
0: Now, The book itself begins in the 18th century, right? So when we're thinking about a long-term history, there are lots of potential places to begin, but the, but the specific point of the 18th century becomes really important um, for many reasons to the story as it's going to unfold and lead us through the chapters. So there are Various kinds of things that are happening in this context of the 18th century Um, and sort of early as it moves into the 19th century. And you take us into some of these in the first chapter. um, These include the significance of America um, coming onto the stage of the China trade, right? There was a longer history of a European China trade. And you bring us into the significance of America getting involved in the China trade, you talk about the importance of Chinomania, um, so to speak, in America at this point and introduce us to Benjamin Franklin um, and other figures who are really interestingly um, part of this larger um, landscape of interest in China in ways that might be um, interesting and surprising for some readers and listeners. And you also bring us into um, the significance of the conflict over opium, right? In the late, Mm -hmm. as we move into the 19th century, in the late... 1830s and early 1840s. Now, um, let's maybe start here because this becomes an important touchstone for the rest of the book. The conflict over opium in this middle period of the 19th century, as you put it here, transformed China's relationship with America. So, for you, what are some of the most significant ways? that that's happening, and what's going on here in the middle of the 19th century in this part of the book that, for you, um, lays down one or more of these threads that continue to um, be part of the story as we move through the book?
1: Well, the opium war, as we all, most of us know, was a transformative experience for China. Uh, Modern Chinese history typically begins with the opium trade and the opium war, and when, uh, and uh, and modern China's quote unquote is born through the opium experience. Um, but the, uh, for the United States or for Americans, I think this is also a turning point in its attitude, in their attitude, their, their view of China. Uh, up until this time, uh, most Americans had a quite positive and favorable impression of China, and as you mentioned, Benjamin Franklin and other uh, Ezra Stiles at Yale, many had quite a, a, a fascination with China, both its political philosophy, its moral philosophy, and economy. And they wanted to know what China might offer the United States. Um, at the early stages of the war, most Americans were quite sympathetic with China's side in the conflict and condemned Britain. being basically a dope peddler and forcing the war upon China to pay for his opium Uh, and there was certainly uh, anti-British sentiment uh, inherited from past uh, conflicts Uh, but as the war went on and other Americans looked more closely at the conflict some such as in particular John Quincy Adams as I talk about in the book uh, developed quite a different stance towards China Uh, that had implications for America and for its relationship with China. And that is to say that uh, John Quincy Adams, in fact, even though he was quite a moral man and and a passionate anti-slavery proponent, uh, came to sympathize and support the British position in the war, which is not that he was for opium, but he was for the idea And principle of free and open trade and open markets, which the British government said formally was its position and explanation for conducting the war against China. And thus, uh, even though Adams uh, found much resistance to his point of view at first, he found more and more come around to his attitude. And following the war, uh, we see a trend in America of more Americans uh, accepting that position that Britain and then America would be the advocates of creating a world system of free markets and uh, commerce that uh, would leave China behind.
0: Now, part of this story also becomes really interesting in terms of how we think about the history of America, the history of the U.S. specifically, um, and the history of continental and westward expansion. So one of the really, at least for me, interesting and surprising things about what's happening in this period is that China becomes really significant um, in terms of the conversation about westward expansion and the practicalities of westward expansion in America. Um, can you talk about what, for you, are are some of the most interesting and important aspects of that?
1: Well, going back and doing the reading for the, this book, it, it, uh, I was struck by the lure of asia uh for american merchants and for the american public this lure the china trade idea as you mentioned had been inherited from europe and americans took got, took to it with a particular passion uh, because at least in the late 18th century early 19th century there was the belief that to trade uh, was the way countries would enrich themselves and America was seen as being in a particularly advantageous position, positioned as it was between Europe and Asia, as the link uh, between the Atlantic and the Pacific, and that uh, Americans early on uh, accepted this idea that there was a almost a providential or a desti- destinarian um, feature of their lives that would that had placed them in this fortunate position to be the link between the West, so to speak, and the East. Uh, And so the China trade, or the Far East trade, was seen as especially important for America's future. It's for its fate, as I said in the title of the book. And thus, the idea of getting from the East Coast uh, and the Midwest through the rest of the continent to get to the West Coast and the big ports out here uh, was seen as an urgent necessity and essential for American prosperity, and for its own identity.
0: Now, one of the really interesting things that happens related to this as we move into the next chapter um, is that there starts to be uh, an important aspect of this Westward expansion that involves labor and that involves Chinese immigrant labor specifically. So in this chapter on physical and spiritual connections, you're not only talking about the significance of missionaries, in China, right? So Americans going to China. um, This becomes important um, for many reasons, among which are um, the first contact many Chinese had with Americans was with missionaries. And also at home, many, many Americans are forming their opinions about China and the Chinese through these same missionaries as they're coming back. So there's a lot of Stuff happening that we won't have a chance to talk too much about that has to do with Americans going to China. Mm-hmm. Now, for Chinese uh, students, intellectuals, and also laborers that are coming to America, there's also really important elements of the story that are being shaped here. For you, what are the most um, some of the most interesting and important aspects of the ways that Chinese again intellectuals, um, students, and laborers coming to America? Are shaping Sino-American interaction in this period.
1: Uh, let me get to that question in a moment. but If you don't mind, I wanted to to say a, a, something about Westward expansion, of course, and uh, the, the term you raise of manifest destiny, and just to, just to offer a, a what I hope the book does a sort of a, a different or a fresh view of manifest destiny, which is often taken. Uh, here uh, as meaning the, the, the uh, rounding out of the, the, the country to the, be continental, and that was the manifest destiny go from sea to shine and sea. Uh, the the motive for that, or the stimulus for this as I've tried to suggest, is, is also to very much get to the Pacific and to the Asia trade. Mm-hmm. So the manifest destiny was not just continental, but it was almost global, that it was the destiny of America to be this global at least through uh, Trans-Pacific Empire, uh, uh, that would give it a special clout in the world. And now the missionaries who go, I've talked about the commercial aspect. Uh, The missionaries are important because this is a spiritual dimension. This is not material. And I put this, uh, I give this attention to the missionaries because they brought back a different sort of view of China, needing a China, a country that needed uplift, but it was also America's sort of manifest destiny to help uplift them. So there was not just money to be made in China, but there were also souls to save, millions of them. And that it was America's particular destiny and responsibility as being a, uh, as, as a, missionary, a, a missionizing country to go and save uh, China to help prepare the way for the second coming of Christ. And this was going to be, many American missionaries believed this was their particular uh, responsibility for world Christianity, for salvation. So there was a material as well as spiritual uh, aspect of it. Now, these are all sort of very high-minded and uh, and, uh, 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 important. Uh, Americans who had their eyes on, their gaze on Asia, but it was a different matter when Asians, Chinese, start to come to America in, in the form of hundreds of thousands of laborers, and hundreds of intellectuals who come here. And they are, in a sense, the mirror image of Americans going to China. It's a very interesting interaction because I think it'd be, it's rare to find two countries in which you have such a large numbers of an important people going back and forth uh, between um, both countries. One might think of India and, and England. But you don't have hundreds of thousands of Indians going to help construct Britain as you've had hundreds of thousands of Chinese who come to the United States in the 19th century to help build the West. Uh, and so the China question becomes a domestic american question if you will that these chinese as extensions of china sort of in a way as the Americans american saw them now now are considered as as part of the china question uh and raise issues of labor competition of uh, of civilization of moral morality uh, all all sorts of things which were raised uh by the chinese presence here of a very different sort of people of intellectually uh and culturally distinct from other Americans. Thank
0: you. So there's a lot more going on than we have time to talk substantively about, right? In this period, the chapter talks about the idea of the phantom of the yellow peril. It talks about the Boxer Rebellion and um, the sentiment of the Chinese toward Americans and also toward um, Europeans more broadly during the Boxer Rebellion. There's a lot going on here, and I just wanted to mark that for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers um, to let them know at least part of what they'll find in this chapter if they go looking that we won't necessarily talk too much about. Um, But as we come to the end of the 19th century, America and China had, as you put it here, reversed positions in terms of their relative security and power. By the end of the century, China had been humbled. And this idea of humbling and the language of humiliation um, recurs throughout the book to describe what's happening here. Um, They'd been humbled by a series of, as you put it, humiliating defeats. And at this point, America, as you put it here, still wanted Chinese wealth, but not necessarily the Chinese people themselves. So this moves us into a discussion in the next chapter of, among other things, the 1890s, um, a point where U.S.-China relations really began to sour. Now, one important aspect of this change in relations is what you um, describe here as the open-door policy. Because this becomes really important later on, and it also echoes some of the concerns that we've talked about already, can you talk about this open-door policy? What's important about it, and what do we need to understand about this to understand um, some of the ways that this reverberates later?
1: The open-door policy in American diplomatic occupies a very important place in American diplomatic history, both specifically with regards to uh, U.S.-China relations, but also more broadly as a metaphor, as a sign, in a sense, of uh, characterizing an important trend in American foreign relations more broadly. Now, the open door policy more specifically arose uh, in the late uh, 19th century as China faced disintegration and dismemberment by foreign powers. in the United States, Washington, stepped forward and announced that it had uh, it did not favor dismemberment of China. That it favored and supported territorial integrity of China respect for its, uh, its state and, uh, and also stood for equal opportunity for the United States and for all countries to engage in commerce in China and to be accepted as equals within China. This was put forward in a way to, to support Chinese uh, sovereignty, but also clearly to advance America's own interest as have been an equal player within, within China. Now, that's why it's called open door. China would be open door to everybody, especially Americans. Uh, American diplomatic historians came to use this policy, this idea of open door diplomacy, open door, to talk about a particular form of American uh, approach of American foreign relations more generally around the world where the U.S. has been a aggressive uh, proponent of... Uh, open market to capitalism and trade, free trade around the world all throughout the whole rest of the 20th century. So this moment is an important one, both specifically for U.S.-China relations uh, in the midst of the Boxer Rebellion and the the, the possibility of uh, Chinese disintegration, but also in the rise of America as a great global power in the 1890s that is now trying to identify its own approach to American, to foreign relations.
0: Now, there's a lot happening in China um, in this period that is being experienced by and responded to by and um, understood by Americans. And you talk um, in this chapter and in the chapters hereafter about some of the ways that Americans are responding to some of these massive, massive events. One of them is the 1911 Republican Revolution in China. Um, and you talk about the idea of Sun Yat-sen as the George Washington of China, right? Can you talk a little bit, um, just briefly, about, um, for you, what are the important aspects of the American response to the 1911 revolution in terms of um, what comes later?
1: Well, America's response to the revolution is curious. Uh, We hear uh, some tales about how receptive Americans were to the end of imperial rule to the, to the acceptance of Sun Yat-sen, who uh, had his education uh, part of his education in Hawaii. He lived many years in the United States. He spoke English. He was a Christian. And, and uh, if you go look at some of the newspapers at the time and commentaries, they they think Sun Yat-sen is one of their own, one of America's own. So, the 1911 revolution is uh, made by uh, American uh, influence. And this is why they, not I, called the Senate and George Washington as sort of a connection between the two countries, special connection. And uh, Woodrow Wilson was also very keen on supporting uh, what he believed was this move towards republicanism in China and democracy. And then at the same time, other Americans, including Wilson himself, had had a certain, maybe if you will, more realpolitik attitude where they – They were less enamored of the uh, idealistic uh, possibilities of uh, liberalization in China and more concerned with certain of the power issues within China and China's uh, position in greater East Asia. So the American stance towards uh, Sun Yat-sen is a mixed one, in fact, where it was quite uh, effusive and supportive. But when push came to shove, uh, Americans really didn't give very much support for Sun Yat-sen or his republic um, uh, at this time.
0: As we move into the next chapters, um, you also talk about some other major figures that were um, understood by Americans in various ways. And one of the next ones that we talk about here is Chiang Kai-shek. Um, In the words of the fourth chapter, um, you say, Few, if any, foreign leaders so beguiled, confused, frustrated, angered, and divided Americans as intensely as Chiang Kai-shek. Can you talk a little bit about that? um, And and what's important, again, for us to understand about that, to understand um, what's going to happen in this part of the chapter, or this part of the book?
1: Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to interject a sort of a personal note here. Of course, of course. (laughs) Uh uh, and and uh, you asked how this book came to be, and I sort of get to that at the epilogue or afterward in the book where I give sort of an autobiography. And um, in there, what I try to suggest is that my, my own family background has led me, uh, in addition to the intellectual curiosity I have about this question, but my own family background that led me to this uh, field, uh, study, um, because my father was involved in a uh, kind of cultural diplomacy um, and was <laughs> friends with Madam Chiang Kai-shek and probably met John Kai-shek himself. And my father was close with many of the top leaders of Nationalist China in the 1930s. Uh, and growing up, I had heard a lot about uh, this connection. And yet from other relatives, uh, including some of his own closest relatives who stayed in China, my father came from China to the United States and permanently in 1949. Um, they were, they were, they were uh, uh, horrified by Chiang Kai-shek, who, who dismissed him and who, who was the enemy of the revolution. And m- many relatives sided with the communists against Chiang Kai-shek. So Chiang, Chiang Kai-shek had a way of really polarizing people, certainly in, in China, but also in the United States. And here, we have service in similar Pattern where there are those who idealized John shek who thought he was uh, uh, again a Christian leader, a great war tactician, strategist, um, a a uh, moral uh, person who was uh, uh, upon whom America might count as the anchor of American interests and free world interests in East Asia after World War. Uh, two. and yet others, uh, came to the diametrically opposite position of John shek We dismissed him as a buffoon, as a fool, as incompetent, as cruel, a corrupt, uh, an autocrat. Uh, it, it's it's rare to find a, a foreign leader so disparaged and so admired by Americans simultaneously as John Uh and it's, it's 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 frankly not a, a completely. Uh, it's not an easy. Um, thing to explain um, other than perhaps we could say John Kyshek really may have been many of those things simultaneously. Uh, he was, I think, as the historical record is beginning to suggest a more complicated uh, figure, a more human figure, and that is both with foibles and with strengths than maybe some of us uh, had assumed or people at the time in the 40s and 50s had believed.
0: And you talk actually in the next chapter about his wife actually traveling to the u s and um, there were kind of important outcomes of that, right I mean she becomes she's very popular um, there's a lot that comes out of that visit um, that importantly shapes popular opinion and there's a lot of support um, for the nationalists by at least the gov- you know Washington um, government that is happening a- as part of that right
1: mm-hmm.
0: now, but um, it's not entirely um, uncomplicated, right? There's a lot of different kinds of opinions going on at this point. So let's back up um, a step just to kind of understand um, how we ultimately get to um, response to the rise of communism in China. Now, importantly, what's happening in the context of the Japanese takeover of Manchuria and in the context of um, this earlier part of the story is um, something called the Hoover-Stimson Doctrine. This is a statement um, in the words of Chapter 4 of moral condemnation, moral condemnation, right? It's important, of Japanese aggression and a declaration of non-recognition of the territory seized through military means. Now, that sounds um, really great and really fancy, um, but as you describe here, it's often described as woefully inadequate, if not a form of appeasement, Um, than of aggression that opened the way to global war. So can you talk a little bit about that, sort of American responses to um, Japanese aggression in China, and kind of what were some of the most important aspects of those responses that, again, are going to shape and provide the threads that we can follow as we get to the end of the story?
1: Well, uh, let let me say is say something about my intended audience uh, as a way of getting to your question the the book is not meant for specialists alone i hope specialists will read it and i think attentive specialists will pick up that i am engaged in important historical discussions Mm -hmm. throughout much of the book and you've Pointed to one in particular, and that is the historical evaluation of the Hoover Stimson document of non recognition of Japan's uh, takeover of Manchuria. Uh, and this occupies a very important part of the uh, d- discussion within American formulations in the beginnings of World War II and why World War II and Japanese aggression persists uh, through the 1930s, eventually uh, bring into the United States. So it is a pivotal question for epic events. And there are those uh, who contend that America's response to Japan's aggression uh, was woefully inadequate and a form of East Asia appeasement akin to what happened with uh, Britain and Germany in, 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 in Europe. Um, but what I point out there is that America's response, even though it was not a military reaction to uh, to Tokyo, that America's response was much more forceful and outrage uh, in the world arena than anybody else. And this is connected, I argue, to the longstanding American sympathy to China uh, and the particular connections that Americans had to China, going back to the, to the open door and even before and that this uh, the, this Hoover-Stimson policy is uh, actually, as even at the time, was articulated as a m- update of the open door policy. Uh, and so I say that 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 to those who say this was a form of uh, appeasement, that I- in the context of the times, uh, the United States took a singular position uh, against Jap- Japanese aggression, and and the consequence was that Japan began to really. See the United States in quite a different way, um, um, and, and which would have ter- you know, major implications later on. But the, my my just my reason for going into this issue is to talk about uh, the American popular opinion of Manchuria and political opinion, uh, which was quite sympathetic and supportive of of, of China, and and thus the this is perhaps a more controversial issue is, is linking this eventually to the issue of, to the question of Pearl Harbor. Why did Japan attack Pearl Harbor? Uh, What was its purpose? What did, what was its perception of the United States and and, uh, uh, America's attitude towards Tokyo um, during the 1930s? And, the argument is that America and Japan perceived that it, America had a particular attachment to China that confounded Japan. I don't go into this much, and, and Japan, uh, Japan historians may may take this up. But the point, the the argument is, is that they had a difficult time uh, understanding why the United States was so attached to a country with which. It had much less, uh, much weaker economic ties than, say, between Japan and the United States. The United States benefited from the J- J- Japan trade much more than they did with the China trade. So why did the United States have this attachment and defense of China? Uh, and they concluded, various in various ways, that this was all not good for Tokyo, and was seen as as as. Uh, the, the hostility towards Japanese expansion on the mainland was taken as fundamentally hostile to tokyo and and uh beyond the issue of a, of, of of uh aggression that there was something anti japanese about the america 's position uh, because of its uh perceived attachment and even sentimentality towards china
0: and this Attachment and sentimentality brings out a really important aspect of, I think, at least from the perspective of one reader, right, which is all I can really speak for, but an aspect of um, the kind of work that the book does, which I think works really, really well to weave together and to show the different kinds of, but the the, um, important kinds of impact that are happening um, and reverberation that are happening both at the level of policy and at the level of governments, but also at the level of individual human beings. And so we've talked a little bit about Adams, right? Um, you talk earlier in the book about other individuals who were experiencing China, um, American individuals who were experiencing China, who are writing about China, and who are actually um, having really important um, influences on public opinion. You talk about John Dewey and his wife, among other intellectuals, a little bit earlier on. And this chapter looks at Pearl Buck, um, journalist Edgar Snow, who helped found the kind of legend of Mao, um, and also Henry Robinson Luce and his wife Claire Booth Luce, who also have um, profound impact on the understanding of um, and sort of reaction to China um, by Americans, and especially by um, perhaps conservative Americans in this period. And this continues to be a theme, um, at least from my perspective throughout the rest of the book. Mm -hmm. Now, the rise of communism in China in 1949 really provoked a turn, an important turn, in American attitudes toward China. Um, And you talk about this um, at length in Chapter 5. Among other things, um, what's happening here um, is we're seeing, well, actually, I'll just hit this back to you. For you, um, what's some of the most important kinds of reactions? Um, that's happening in terms of American response to the rise of communism in China that we need to understand to kind of have an informed perspective on how this plays out.
1: You, you mentioned that the American sentimentality or connection to China was often associated with conservatives, but it's, there was, it, uh, those words can also be used to describe the sentiments that many on the left towards China. There was an interesting uh, duality here where you had those who formed the core of the China lobby and later on even the beginning stages of McCarthyism uh, can be traced to uh, the whole issue of who lost China in the late 40s uh, raised by conservatives. But uh, liberals and leftists also found a, a particular fascination with the Chinese left. And this uh, divided obviously uh, 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 Americans with regards to China, but also among themselves. Um, so, uh, I'm sorry, what was the specific question? Of course. Yeah. Um,
0: so, what I was trying to um, ask about is, for you, what were some of the most important aspects of American responses to the rise of communism in China, um, so that yeah, we can yeah. kind of you know, use that to then understand um, what happens next?
1: Yeah, so, so it, it, the, 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 the reaction to the rise of communism in the 1940 1949 revolution uh, is all in the, in the context of this longer, decades-long, for many Americans who were living at the time, uh, engagement with China. And I use the word sentimentality or emotionality, uh, which formed the context for the policy decisions and the political decisions uh, uh, at, at the time. Uh, so uh, the 1940 response in 1949, uh, I think, has to be understood in the context of this longer um, interaction uh, between uh, between the two, and the idea that China could become communist was uh, uh, unacceptable, both sort of intellectually, but also not just politically, but but intellectually or emotionally for many Americans because many years, many believed that China was being made in the image of America, that America then had a particularly positive, constructive relationship with China, that the Chinese people, in turn, through Jiang Kai-shek, its leaders, Madam Chiang Kai-shek, and its people, um, uh, its intellectuals, many of them were educated in the United States, had a particular fondness and attachment to the United States, uh, That that the Years of effort of the missionaries of educators of political leaders of political statesmen who defended and supported china in in, in ways which they thought were altruistic, such as the Hoover Stimson doc that all this seemed to say how, how can this be that this country for whom America has uh, def- uh, defended and has, for whom it's, dis- it's supported uh, that how could this now reject America now see America as imperialist, as enemy, and everything anathema to China's own interest. Uh, so this was this was a shock to Americans uh, that went beyond the particular political dimensions of China's fall to the Soviet camp. As it was seen, it was seen as sort of a slap in the face uh, to American goodwill.
0: And You describe here, I mean, in this part of the book, and specifically in Chapter Five, the fraying of political and military relations between China and the U.S. I mean, even in, far as Wash, there's, or insofar as the larger context um, is that Washington is continuing to fund and support the nationalists in this period. Um, you describe the China White Paper, right, as part of this. Um, in which the U.S. um, or the China white paper that's produced claims that the U.S. had done all it could, could, right, to help the nationalists stay in power, and now they would have to, quote, fend for themselves. China appeared, quote, lost to communism. And this idea of um, China being lost to communism, the questioning who lost China, um, becomes an important theme in the work of some of the people who are writing about this in the period. Now, as we move forward into the story and we come to the last chapters of the book, um, this plays out in really interesting ways. For 30 years between 1949 and 1979, um, regular governmental relations did not exist between China and the U.S. And here we have a context of the global um, politics of the 20th century being shaped by Cold War politics, right? And you, um, you describe this at length in really interesting ways in this part of the book. In this context, we see some key players and some key voices emerging that are not only interesting in terms of the arc of the story, but that also are interesting much more broadly. One of the things you talk about in Chapter 6 is the importance of African-American views on China in this context. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: In my book, I explore an important cultural dimension which we might call race. And in the early part of the book, and in later sections, I talk about uh, white American attitudes towards Chinese people. Uh, you mentioned the yellow peril. I talk about the yellow peril historically as well as uh, contemporary phenomena. Uh, but as I think about race, I, I have to think about Americans other than white Americans. And, when we look at African American views towards China, we see quite a different stance uh, throughout many of the periods that we're discussing than white Americans, because African Americans, at least certainly, or at least their leaders, and many of the more active leaders, were keenly interested in looking for allies, for models of other social development as partners in a global fight against uh, racial discrimination or racism. And after 1949, uh, they, many of them they see China as a powerful example and element in the global fight against white imperialism, if you will. Uh, and from Langston Hughes, W.E.D. Boyce, to later on the Black Panthers that they stepped forward and offered fascinating commentaries on China. Whatever white Americans seemed to find distasteful about China, many black Americans found quite uh, uh, fascinating and positive. Um, and it was not just that the China was sort of uh, the uh, enemy of, uh, my enemy therefore for my friend, but that the model that China, Mao's China, was presenting to the rest of the world of militants, of people standing up, the idea of throwing off these century of humiliation, of being humbled, you know, resonated from, with many African Americans who sought a, a similar future for themselves.
0: As the chapter continues, um, it also talks about some other voices. Who are interacting with, engaging with China? Who are important to this story, but um, whom uh, we won't have a chance about whom we won't have a chance to talk much? But I just want to mark these for listeners. The chapter takes us into um, the opinions and approaches of John King Fairbank, who becomes important later on as well in the story. Um, takes us into Kissinger's um, approaches. Richard Nixon, who's, of course, a very, very famous part of this story, and also Shirley MacLaine, um, who has a transformative experience Mm -hmm. as a result of her visit to China. And so listeners who are particularly interested in these parts of the story will find a lot um, of really wonderful material in Chapter 6. As we come to Chapter 7, though, we come to a discussion of um, all but more recent history. Um, Chapter 7 asserts that the China-America connection is likely to determine each country's future, or at least it reflects um, that um, opinion on the part of lots of people who are thinking about this connection um, in recent work, in recent scholarship and um, policy discussions. The chapter takes us through the approaches to um, foreign policy, specifically with regard to China, on the parts of a series of recent presidents. George Herbert Walker, Bush, and Clinton – who shifted, um, as the chapter puts it, in the words of the chapter, the anchor of America's relationship with China from national security to economics. And we see this, um, we see a warm relationship, um, especially after 9-11, cultivated um, toward China by George W. Bush. Um, And also we see a discussion here of Obama, who, you know, criticizes China during his campaign, but largely drops that theme of China as a threat um, once in office. Now there are a couple of things that are happening later on in this chapter that I think are, are important to talk about. And I'd like you to um I'd like to ask you if you would talk about both of them. The mm-hmm. first one um, is the idea of a Chinese dream, right? You talk in this chapter about Xi Jinping um, and this idea of a Chinese dream um, that's kind of comparable to the American dream. Um now I I think this is interesting and important to talk about for many reasons, but in part because this language of fate, of destiny, of dream. Um, It has been important throughout the book up to this point, and you've emphasized the importance of a kind of uh, language of destiny, um, sentimental language, right? And it seems to me that the language of dreaming um, and a dream is part of this overall um, thread throughout the book. So, hitting it back to you, Mm -hmm. um, Xi Jinping, um, this idea of a Chinese dream, for you, what's important about this?
1: This is a history book, Yes, it's about perceptions, attitudes, stances, uh, sentiment in the past as, and continuing through the past. But the suggestion is that there is a future to all this and that a, a dream and sentimentality are sometimes associated with things of the past. We are sentimental about something that's happened in the past. Uh, we have a dream about something that has occurred. But there's also... An important element in the book, which I suggest that this is all quite forward thinking, that what Americans think about when they thought about their future, they often thought about its connection, America's connection with China. When they thought about the past, it often was more with Europe. Europe certainly is a fulcrum of American life and culture and politics and so forth. And, but that's a sort of old Europe. It kind of comes up repeatedly, to America, even in a contemporary American politics. There's a sense where Europe is Europe, and, and we know Europe, and it's the past, and it's the stable, it's the foundation. But when we think of the future, it's really going to be in the Pacific. It's going to be in China. And that's not new. This is something that goes back This to the 18th century. Um, And we are the inheritors of that sort of of that attitude Um, and the dream, Xi Jinping's uh, uh, formulation of the Chinese dream, in a sense, is the curious reflection of the same sort of uh, uh, attitude that it builds upon the past. That is, it's a dream to get away from the humiliation of the past to something much grander and more beautiful in the future. Uh, and it uses, I think, almost deliberately the vocabulary of the American dream. The two are very different, I think, in, in many respects, but they do overlap with this idea of thinking about the best uh, of, of, the, 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 uh, of the countries is ahead, that the the dream, we can all dream we have the possibilities of reformulating ourselves, form- creating something much better in the future based upon the past, drawing from the past, but we have the future to look forward to. And implicitly, in both those formulations, is the other country, China or America, depending upon whom uh, is speaking.
0: The other theme, actually, um, that's, that's very striking in this chapter comes directly from uh, what you were just saying, right? This idea of the two countries... You talk in this part of the chapter about the importance of China and America, um, in, in the words of one author, China-America, right, mm-hmm. as um, kind of dual powers, right? You talk about them as G2 powers, or the, the idea that some have written about, right, that they are G2 powers. Can you talk about this way of thinking about also possible futures of China and America in terms of a, this kind of dual position of leaders of a world economy for you, What's important and compelling about this vision as we move forward? And what's um, perhaps not compelling about this vision as we move
1: forward? Well, just to be clear, I, I'm trying to be a commentator, an observer of mm-hmm. these cultural or post-social trends. And I didn't formulate the idea of G2. Of course. Uh, no. Yeah. No, at, no at, I, I
0: wasn't trying to claim that. I'm yeah. sorry. But that's why I mentioned the, oh, the other people who yes. were speaking of this um, I'm
1: asking you about your opinion as a yes. commentator and as yes uh, and uh, it, it, and it, it, as much as I observe the, the, the life that goes around us, and I went back and studied this and read these commentaries from the past fifteen years or so. they really it struck me that even this idea of the g two can be fit into this paradigm, into this approach, this interpretation that I'm offering. This uh, 200 years, I've seen the connections, the interconnection between the two countries and the destiny of the two countries being very much bound up with each other. And the G2 being sort of, that is the group of two, instead of the G7, the seven most industrialized countries or the big, powerful economic countries in the world that some commentators have said, just drop the others because the others aren't aren 't so aren 't as important as really you really when you, when you look at it there are really only two big players that are going to count for everything in the world or most everything in the world, and this is the united States and china and it it uh, can be understood i think as as an, this current in articulation of something that uh, we 've seen repeatedly throughout uh much of the history now, what do I think about it uh I think it's a bit of an exaggeration. Many many of these comments can be said, well, this is all political rhetoric, or it's, it's for a public audit. But I think it goes deeper than that. I think there are people who generally uh, believe th- this uh, this formulation, that this is the future. Maybe they have, may have changed their minds. Some of the, those who have t- articulated or endorsed the idea of a G2 a few years ago may have changed their opinions. But nevertheless, they advanced it a few years ago, and we still hear it. Uh, pr- proposed in different ways uh, these uh, these days, which which come from people from, from Warren Buffett, from Henry Paulson, and other po- economic political leaders, who are keenly focused on economic developments in China and see that China's economy as uh, critical, bad or good, to uh, the future of America.
0: And one of the reasons that I asked you for your own um, opinion about this is that you do make the decision at the end of the book to close it by relating the history that's come before um, your own work as a historian looking at these as historical phenomena to your own personal history, right? So you do end the story um, with yourself um, and with your personal history and uh, relate that to the story that we've just been reading. So um, I think... as a way to match the structure of the book, that's perhaps um, an appropriate way to end as we move toward our conclusion. Um, can you talk about your decision to integrate your own personal history as an afterward to the story? For you, what's important about that? And um, how and why for you is it important to do that um, as a way of adding a coda to this larger history?
1: Well, uh, I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, what, one point I'd like to make is that I don't um, make explicit uh, in the book anywhere my methodology, if you will. I mean, historians are always, many, many of us, are pretty messy methodologically. Uh, we don't make explicit our assumptions, or our approaches, much to say, social, uh, formal social scientists, uh, you know, you often do. And what I try to do in this book is to marry, or link, and I hope people will pick this up, uh, a, a various forms of approaching international history, and that is, there, are, there is the political dimension, there is a cultural dimension, there is a the rational dimension, there is an the irrational dimension, all of which are all debated among social scientists, you know. and there's a the personal dimension, and I take them all seriously in a sense to saying that they all make an important difference when we think about America-China relations. We can't reduce the relationship to only economics, to only irrational ideas about perception, about attitude, or racial fears. Uh, they all play an important difference at different times. And I think I ended the book on a personal note to try to bring into to, to to bring that up as as maybe a bit, it's a bit of a conceit of to, to introduce myself to the reader but also to try to present a an insight into the ways that this history has affected the author uh and the interpretation of this book that one has just read uh and that yes I'm singular or or particular for this story but that it is not limited to me, but to many of the people in the book. Uh, you mentioned many of the individuals, these characters, I think would have, uh, could add similar coda to their China stories if they were uh, given the chance.
0: So just to add a coda to this coda, that's your <laughs> final question um, because you mentioned this. I mean, there are a lot of aspects of this personal history that you bring up in this afterward. You talk about, again, your father, right, who you've already talked about in the course of this conversation as an accomplished artist um, whose work was appreciated by actually several of the people you write about in the book. Um, You talked about your own radicalized politics in college, your study of the work of Mao. Um, you talk about your um, turning down a chance to go to Harvard for grad school um, and talk about the, the fact that Fairbank was working there at the time, right, as part of that. And you talk about um, your leaving academia for a decade after um, beginning work at Stanford as a Ph.D. student. I mention this only because um, of what you just said, right, that um, you want readers or to understand the ways that the story shaped you and that you and your personal history shaped the story. So as a final question before we get to the conclusion, for you, what are the most important aspects of your personal history that you feel shaped the way you approached the history in this book?
1: Oh, that's a deep question. <laughs> yeah, well, you invited
0: it, right? I mean, you did end the this, end this story on on this. So.
1: Well, I, I think it's no secret that I have a particular fascination with China. Um, that I'm, I have a particular fascination with the relationship between these two countries, which I think is so elaborate and complicated and fraught with problems, but also uh, uh, inspiring examples of connection between the two peoples. Uh, that this is a personal story that I offer uh, through the book, a personal story I offer as Coda, but I think it's a personal story for many, many Americans. Uh, And I think this relationship between China and America is unique in the personal dimension of missionaries, of traders, of military people, of political activists, of various uh, persuasions uh, that China seems to, and and America for Chinese, uh, strike important and singular personal There's There is a special, as the term has been used, a special relationship, which is not just political, but I think a cultural, uh, almost psychological, social dimension uh, in the relationship. Now, that means uh, that uh, individual Americans and Chinese have made important contributions to the relationship. It's not all about high politics and policy makers, but often individuals, you mentioned many of them, had profound influence over the relationship and attitudes perceptions about the relationship, Fairbank or, or, or Edward Snow or Shirley MacLaine, uh, that, that went beyond uh, the formal. And I think this is going to continue. Um, so in my own, drawing from my own personal past, uh, what I might say about the lesson, if you can say there's a lesson from a history book, is that the long view is important to take. Uh, I don't think myself as being too senior. I still feel myself quite active, although compared to many of your listeners, I probably will be quite, quite senior. Uh, and, but I find myself uh, sort of amused that I'm speaking about uh, the long view and, and to take the long view. But I think I mean it quite sincerely that this is a long history. And in my lifetime... Which is not that long, I think, but maybe longer than some of your many of your other listeners is that the ups and downs in this relation have been extraordinary, and just in my own lifetime we've seen uh war, we've seen close relationship, we've seen mutual fascination, we've seen competition we've seen a- almost uh, 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 denunciations of the most vehement sort uh, and as I saw sit and look at this, as I think about this, these decades of the relationship, it strikes me that we need all of us to take a long view and not be caught up in the passions of the moment, whether it's devaluation of the B, whether it's something in the South China Sea, whether it's this or that. These are all important current events, but these current events will pass. They're important, certainly. But if we try to think about the relationship in a a way that we hope, I think most people hope, will become more stable, more reliable, more predictable, that I would suggest that we need to take the long view.
0: Thank you, Gordon. And so now we are at the end of our hour. Um, now, there's, of course, a million billion things that we haven't had a chance to talk about. The book is much, much um, richer than we had a chance to explicitly articulate in the course of an hour. But even given that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners?
1: Well, just briefly, and I'm, uh, is that, that I'm often uh, I've been giving book talks and then they come to the end, something like this, and they say, well, what does this all mean? And I think it means that we need to see the two countries as really quite locked uh, with each other and that we have been and we will be in the future. And, if, and given that, we should ask ourselves, well, what is in our mutual benefit given that neither of us are going to, going away anytime soon and both of us both countries are going to be essential critical for both people's future and I think we need to have a more const- we need to have constructive points of view and to think about this long-term uh, inheritance from the past and the long term as we look out into the future
0: so now that the book is out what's next for you uh, what are you currently working on
1: well, I have that book I mentioned early on in the interview that I interrupted many, many, uh, some years ago, and that book was uh, is about uh, race and World War II on the home front. And I'm thinking about uh, the ways that uh, the Pacific War, in particular, affected uh, race, uh, racial ideas, and racial violence on the home front uh, after Pearl Harbor. And part of my career I, I, I is focused on American sort of ethnic. Relations and race relations, and that's a product of that uh, interest. Uh, the other big uh, part of my career right now is I'm a co-director of an international uh, project on the recovery of the experience of the history of Chinese railroad workers in North America. Mm. And we now have about 100 collaborators in this project when we, uh, in China and Taiwan, Hong Kong, throughout the United States, Canada, where we're trying to exhaustively uh, study this, uh, pit, which I think is a pivotal experience, again, part of this U.S.-China relations history of Chinese railroad workers who come and work in the tens of thousands on the first transcontinental line across the United States in the 1860s, and then in Canada, your trans-Canadian line, in which there are 15,000 Chinese who worked on that line, and then worked on lines throughout North America, but even though many of us have heard about these workers or even seen some memorials up there in Canada. Interestingly enough, there are several memorials to them, unlike in the United States, um, that uh, we, don't, we know very little about their lived experience and their other circumstances. And that's what we hope in the project to uh, address.
0: Well, best of luck with that project. And thanks very much for making the time. And congratulations on the book. It's really been a pleasure.
1: Thank you, Carl. It's been fun.
0: You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.